Well, Father, you are our Father. You're not some distant deity who created the cosmos and then took off and left us to ourselves. You're a Father. You're involved in, in, in creation. You're involved in our lives, God. And we see that, Lord, in our text this morning. You're a God that, that works and saves and changes and redeems and is involved. Thank you for that. And Lord, this morning we also believe that you're a God that speaks, that you have given revelation, Lord, and that revelation has come through your son and through the word, and that we hold that revelation in our hands. And so for that reason, God, we, we choose to give our attention this morning to this revelation, this revealing, God, of who you are and what you're doing and how you're working so this morning, Lord, make us studious. Make us focused, God, on what matters here. And I pray that this morning, as always, Lord, it would not just be more information, but it would be transformation. God, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I heard a pastor the other day say something I thought was, it was interesting, profound. There was a time, maybe 20 years ago, maybe more, where... Uh, the thing that we were trying to convince the world of non-Christians, um, our friends, our neighbors, our families, members that don't believe in Jesus, we were trying to convince them that God was real. That was kind of the arguing lines that we used to be talking along, largely because of modernity and sort of this over-reliance on science, assuming that, that the natural world can really, really reveal all these truths. So there was a generation of people that the reason they didn't believe in God was because they felt it was too supernatural. So there was a lot of work done in the Christian community by people like you know, Lee Strobel and, uh, and others and, and apologists that, that sort of were trying to convince that God was real. I don't know if you've noticed this or not, maybe it's just me, but the conversations that I'm having now with people that aren't in the church or people that aren't Christians isn't so much, is God real anymore? It's, is God good? Right? Are you feeling that? It's like, it's like the emphasis now, the emphasis is not, I don't know if I can believe in a God. People have no problem, for the most part, believing in God. The problem they have is, is believing in a God that tells them to do something different than what they want to do. Or a God that would have total sovereignty over their life. Or, or a God that would say he is to be worshipped alone. That's, I feel like, what we're wrestling with. So how do we answer that question? Is God good? Is he really good? Well, Jonah chapter 3 is going to answer that question for us this morning. Here's another thing I find in our culture. I find in our culture that um, we are a people that love faith. Have you noticed that? People love faith. They'll, they'll encourage you and cheer you on to have faith. Good for you. Good job, faith. Faith is, is something that, that they'll, they'll say, I, I, that's good that you have faith. And we're, we're, you're a person of faith. Good job, you know? Here's the thing, though. They have a problem if that faith is in an absolute truth claim. That's where you become a radical, right? That's where you need to calm down. That's where you need to chill out. So the question is, can we be saved by just having faith in faith, faith for faith's sake, or does faith need to be in something? All right, you guys already got it, so we can go home. No. Uh, th this is the question that Jonah chapter 3 answers. So these are some of the themes that I think we're going to be able to look at as we examine. So let's, let's not dilly-dally. Let's just jump right into it. We're in Jonah chapter 3. Let me catch you guys up. If you're visiting this morning, uh, by the way, good morning. Happy you're here. Thanks for coming. Uh, we're, we're three weeks into Jonah. And uh, here's kind of what's been going on. God's commissioned Jonah as his ambassador of mercy. 
to, to bring a message of judgment to the people of Nineveh. Uh, Jonah, who was a prophet from northern Israel, didn't like that idea. In fact, he, he didn't like it so much that he jumped on the first boat that he could uh, in the port of Joppa and fled to, Nineveh, or, uh, fled to Tarshish. Tarshish, the farthest point that he could really get away. Now, uh, what was he trying to do? He was trying to remove himself from God's working domain so that God would have to send a different prophet. Why? Because Jonah hated the Ninevites. Jonah didn't want the Ninevites to be forgiven. The book actually tells us that. He did not want God to show mercy. See, Jonah knew God, and he knew that it would so be like God to forgive these evil pagan people, right? You know, and, and, and as we'll see in, in a minute here, these were, these were bad people. Okay, uh, so Jonah really didn't want these guys to get forgiven, so he, he hops on a boat um, full of these uh, f- sort of Phoenician polytheistic pagans, uh, and, and he starts to go, and then as they're going, God um, commissions a storm to come and to, to really stop Jonah and his tracks. Um, the, the, the sailors are unaware of where this storm is coming from. They know it's from a god, so they cast lots, find out that Jonah is the reason that this storm is coming. Jonah's sleeping in the bottom of the boat. And they, they say, hey, why aren't you up praying to your God, right? Uh, you should never have to tell a prophet that you should be praying to God, right? So finally, Jonah comes up. They realize he's the reason that they have the storm. And then they say, what are we supposed to do with you? How do we make the storm go away? And Jonah uh, says, well, you got to throw me over the rail, which sounds really like he was a sacrificial man. But in reality, what it says about Jonah is that he would rather die than go preach mercy to the nations, he would rather die than submit himself, surrender himself to God's will and God's plan. Uh, so they're like, no, we don't want to throw you over the rail. We don't want to make this deity any angrier than he already is. So they try rowing to shore, and God commissions the wind to stop them from rowing to shore. And they say, finally, okay, fine, we'll throw him over the rail. So they throw him over the rail, storm stops. Now, unbeknownst to Jonah, as he's sinking down into the deep and the dark of the Mediterranean, uh, up above in the boat, these uh, Phoenician polytheistic pagans are getting saved. They're worshiping Yahweh. They're making sacrifices. They go, man, we're going to worship this God, which is really the first hint of what the book of Jonah is really all about. It's about God saving. And not just God saving in general, it's God saving in the nations, is what we're seeing teased out here by the author. So Jonah chapter 2, we looked at last week, is uh, Jonah's poetic account of how he's, what he's feeling and what he's saying and what he's thinking as he's sinking down into the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea, crying out to God. And we saw Jonah cry out with a partial repentance, but not a full repentance. He cries out to God, God delivers him, and ultimately vomits him out onto the shore of Nineveh. Now, we pick up here in Jonah chapter 3, verse 1, uh, and it seems like all of that has been an interruption to the real story, right? Jonah chapter 1, 1 and 2, God commissions him to go, and then there's all these first two chapters of interruption where Jonah's off doing his own thing, and God has to get him back in line with God's will. You could say that, well, that, that was all kind of an interruption from the main story, but here's what we need to remember about the book of Jonah is that Jonah was not necessarily meant to be uh, just a story about God reaching the lost. It's a story about Israel. See, Jonah is a picture of Israel. You need to see that. Jonah is a parable of Israel. His life becomes the message. His rebellion becomes the message to a rebellious people, Israel, 700 or plus years before Christ, who was refusing to step into their call to mission, be missional to the nations. Let's pick it up here in verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. And call out against it the message that I tell you. 
So God is here recapitulating, recommissioning, restating, reclarifying the particular message and the mission that Jonah was supposed to be on this whole time. He's giving Jonah a second chance. This isn't just about God forgiving or God saving. This is about God forgiving and saving in spite of a hard-hearted, rebellious, prodigal prophet. He is not letting Jonah off the hook. This is Jonah's commission. He's going to make sure Jonah does the work. So he reclarifies this message too in verse 3. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth. Now let me just stop and explain a little bit about who these people are. Now if, this, if you were the, uh, the 7th century Jews reading the book of Jonah, I wouldn't need to explain any of this to you. This would be like trying to explain what LA is and what people do there, or what Las Vegas is and what people do there. You'd just be like, yeah, I know that. These, these, the, the original audience of this book, they know about Nineveh, they know about Assyria, but you guys don't. So I need to help you think about that a little bit here because that's job security for me. Okay? So Nineveh was part of the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrian Empire... Uh, really is not the most famous of empires. You've probably been more likely to have heard of the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire, the Persian Empire, the Babylonian Empire. But all of those empires really sat later in time to the Assyrian Empire. Listen, the Assyrian Empire was the first of its kind. It laid the groundwork for the template of how an empire could come into existence. Okay, this idea that you could sort of have, uh, you know, really take over the entire ancient world by having these, these smaller localized governments that you would tax and that you would control. You know, Rome didn't think that up. Babylon didn't think that up. They were taking a page out of Assyria. So at the time, Assyria really is the world superpower. And their power is growing and it's growing fast and it's a threat to every nation, including Israel. Now, Israel, they don't have a lot of military might at this point, okay? They're not, this isn't the, the years of David and Solomon at the, at the, the height of their era. They're very susceptible to being conquered. And Assyria is like this, this looming countdown to death. They, just, they see it. They see their borders expanding. They know it's coming. The Assyrian people, you can read about them. You know, this isn't just, this isn't just Bible. This was a real group of people that lived. Uh, really think about Iraq is where they were at. Nineveh would have been in Iraq. This was a highly developed group of people, um, governmentally, highly underdeveloped ethically. These were bad, really bad people. And history records that for us. We know that here from the text as well. Um, they, the way that they would conquer is they would come into, and they do this to Israel in, in 20 years after uh, this moment here. Uh, they would come into a particular nation. They would overtake that nation largely by fear. Uh, when they would conquer that nation, through bloodthirsty tactics, they would deport the nation and then they would spread them out and reassimilate them into other cultures so that they would lose their sense of culture. So they would lose their sense of national pride. It's brilliant, actually. Okay, the Babylonians would, would, would do, do it a little bit different. The Romans would let them stay in their own land. The Assyrians were smart. They said, no, if we leave them in their own land, we're going to get all kinds of rebellions. We're going to get all kinds of uprisings. We need to remove their national identity. We need to remove their pride and scatter them out all over the place. And that's exactly what Assyria did to Israel in about 20 years after this time. Okay? So that was how they did it. Now, they were, they were very violent, very brutal. Here's what they would do. <clears throat> and I'm sorry if this is too graphic. This is just history. Um, but what they would do is they would uh, siege an, an area, and they would take the bodies or even the living, and they would skewer them on poles, and then they would skin them. So Jonah gets a message from God. Hey, Jonah. Why don't you go preach to the people that might skewer you like a shish kebab and skin you, okay? How is that going like, to settle on Jonah's heart? Like, these are bad, 
bad human beings. Their violence was out of control. We learn in this chapter that the violent sin was actually the primary thing that God was calling them to repent from. I'm sure they had many other areas of sin in their life, but violence was the particular area that God was calling them. The word violence here is the Hebrew word Hamas, not to be confused with the uh, um, Palestinian thing. Okay, Hamas, uh, which is defined as the conduct of someone who has attained power over others and misused it. These guys were very evil. The same word for violence is used in um, Genesis when it describes the days of Noah. Bad, really bad. These guys are really bad. You know, violence is one of the archetypical sins of humanity. Do you remember what the first act of sin was after the fall, after the garden, after sin created this sort of, um, this death in the world? What was the first sin? Cain killing Abel, murder, violence, this archetypical sin against the very nature of God. See, when you take a human life, you are destroying an image bearer of God. That's what makes you valuable as a human being. You reflect the image of God. And Satan loves murder. Satan loves violence because violence denigrates the image of God. So violence, actually, if you look at the empires and if you look through history you'll see that violence in many ways becomes a telltale sign of just how debauched and just how debased and just how immoral a society can get. Their love of violence hits a fever pitch. Think about the Roman Empire. Think about the the gladiatorial games. These guys were addicted to blood and violence and gore. Think about our society. Think about how much we obsess and, and, and worship in many ways violence I mean, are we wondering, really, are we wondering why these, these teenage men, they all seem to be young men without purpose, because there's no purpose for men in our country anymore, by the way, um, except to play video games and look at pornography. So they, they basically are, are, are largely walking into places and shooting people, and we're going, why are people doing this? Well, because violence is a satanic sin. Our culture has gone so far, one particular direction, that violence is now becoming normal in our culture. We're, we're, we're like the first culture ever that has to worry about just random people walking and killing people for no reason. Uh, this, this is all a result of the violence in our world. So, so God, we learned in chapter 1, verse 1, he's hearing this. He's feeling this. He's experienced this. This violence is rising to his ears in the heavens. It's actually very similar to Cain and Abel. Remember what happened when Cain killed Abel? God comes to Cain and he says, Cain, where's your brother? He says, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. What does that tell us about God? He hears, feels, experiences every ounce of sin and violence and injustice and pain and murder and all of these things in the world. He feels them all. So you think God is, is sort of surprised by what Nineveh's doing? No, he's aware of it. And because he's aware of it, he's activating Jonah to become his agent of, of um of mercy, but really his agent of justice here as well. These guys were, they were really bad. My point here is that Jonah was called to really probably the worst humans on the earth at the time. So we give Jonah a hard time, like, come on, man, don't you love God's mercy? Don't you want God to forgive? The last thing in the world Jonah wanted was for God to forgive these guys. You know what he wanted them to do, what God to do? Wipe them off the face of the earth. And I'm pretty sure you would want the same thing. God, get these guys out of here. These guys are terrible. They're evil. They're taking over the world. Just wipe them out, Lord. That's what Jonah wants. That's what Jonah wants God to do. And he doesn't want to go to Nineveh because he knows that it's just like God to show mercy to people like this. He knows what God wants to do. 
Jonah was called to these guys for a couple of reasons. One is because God is not okay with the evil that is happening in Nineveh. Secondly, he's going, God sends Jonah because God knows that the worst are the first to thirst after God's mercy. Have you found that to be true? See, God doesn't just see the violence. He sees a, a field that is ripe, ready to be harvested. People that know they're evil and are ready to repent. So, verse 4, we hear Jonah's sermon. So, Jonah gets vomited up on the ground, on the, on the, on the, on the shore. He, he goes into Nineveh, this, this massive city. By the way, Nineveh was about four times the size of the biggest city in Israel, which was Samaria. Samaria was about 30,000 people. So, you can imagine this is a pretty large city. Jonah enters into Nineveh, starts to proclaim and preach the message. Okay, here's the message. You ready? It's a real page turner. It's a real good one. You could probably tweet it out. Okay. Here it is. Here's Jonah's sermon. Jonah began to go into the city going day's journey. He called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Go in peace. Blessings. Say hi to someone on your way out. Like that's his sermon, you know? I mean, that's, that's Jonah's sermon. There's some things that are missing here. Did you notice that in this sermon? What, what's missing? Well, uh, I don't know. God. <laughs> okay. Here's another one. Uh, mercy. It's implied, but it's not said. How about this one? What they're going to be judged for. In other words, hey, here's why God's mad at you. Here's why God's got your number, right? Doesn't say anything about that. Uh, how about this one? How they could, or how they would be judged. Is it going to be a flood? Is it going to be brimstone? I'll say this. The word overthrown is the same word used to describe Sodom and Gomorrah. So I think Jonah, in his head, he's thinking like it's going to rain meteors. Right? And that's why he goes up, I think, to, to sort of watch in chapter 4, see what's going to happen. We don't see anything about how they can avoid it. And, and, and the most interesting thing to me is we don't see anything about how to, to follow Yahweh. We don't hear anything about how to become a proselyte or how to become a God-fearer or, or how to sacrifice or worship God or how to become part of the covenant community. None of that. This, is, this, in essence, is not really a call to repentance. What is it? It's a declaration of divine judgment. You got 40 days and God's going to fry you. Thanks, Jonah. That was very robust, very encouraging. Okay, now we don't know. Maybe Jonah said more. Uh, I don't know. But the point is, is that, that we're not really, we're meant to see a very, very simple message here. What's incredible about this is that this is all it takes. This very minuscule message, you know, as one who has dedicated my life to contextualizing the gospel and clarifying the gospel and explaining the gospel and all of its features, and I want to make sure that if I tell someone the gospel, I do it very well and robustly. And, you know, as someone that, that dedicates my life to, to that, it's always kind of humbling when I hear how people actually get saved most of the time. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I just picked up a Bible and I read Revelation chapter 6 and I got saved. I'm like, What? Or, or, you know, I, I had a buddy, one of the most godly men I know. He got, he got saved turning on the TV listening to Joel Osteen. That guy has less gospel than ramen noodles has calories. <laughs> well, calories, actually. Nutrition, maybe it would be the better. But God used this guy just to preach the God, just enough to get him into the kingdom, and then, and then God discipled him, right? So it's humbling sometimes to think about how little God can use. Jonah's sermon is pretty pathetic, but yet it's all it takes. It's all that God needed in this moment. Verse 5, the people of Nineveh, note, note this, guys, this is so important, and way to see this. The people of Nineveh believed Jonah. That's not what it says. What does it say? He, he, they believed God. 
They believed God. They didn't believe Jonah. They believed God. That's not an accident that, that it says that. That's intentional. They believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. By the way, sackcloth was a way of showing humility publicly. It was a way, sackcloth was scratchy, it was rough, it was peasants' clothes, slaves' clothes. So putting on sackcloth was like, like a way of humiliating yourself, essentially. And they're fasting, which is a, a picture of humility and hunger and weakness and desperation. So they immediately start triggering these cultural ways that was just sort of normal in those days to, to show that they are sorry over this. In verse 6, the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Again, sitting in dust was a way to, to show humility by bringing humiliation on yourself. These guys are just instantly broken over this message. Verse 7, And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast nor uh, herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man... Okay, this is funny. I'm just going to point this out. I caught this this morning reading this again. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Hey, can you go put some sackcloth on Betsy out in the, the field? Uh, I just really think that our horse needs to be wearing some sackcloth, right, today, just as, as a sign of repentance. Uh, I have chickens at home right now. I don't know how I'm going to get some sackcloth on those chickens, man. Like, maybe I got to sew a little chicken sackcloth robe. I don't know. It's so weird. <laughs> Let them call out. The point is, is that every level of this culture is abased. Every level of this culture is, is devastated by their, their, their need for mercy. Let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way. Here it is. From the violence that is in his hands. The violence here is not just militarily. It's not just top-down bureaucratic governors that are violent. It's every level of the socioeconomic scale here is violent. The poor are violent to the poor. Everyone is violent to everyone. It's, it's a dysfunctional society, and I think they know it. They immediately understand what it is that they need to stop doing. So the king here codifies this into law. Basically, he says, now you guys need to do it. Now, now you guys need to do this by law. We're all going to repent. And then look at what he says in verse 9. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. I want to point out some things here about the repentance of the Ninevites, okay? Uh, just notice a few things. First of all, it's extremely humble, isn't it? Extremely humble. They're sackcloth, ashes, fasting. They're immediately, uh, they're, not, they're not trying to defend themselves. They're not trying to, to, to posture or blame shift or say, well, we're actually Assyria. Who do you think you are? No, they're just instantly humble. They recognize their need and they express it through these sackcloth, ashes, fasting, okay? The second thing about their repentance is, as I already said, it's in every level of the socioeconomic strata. This is a nationwide repentance. Thirdly, and very importantly, their, um, their actions are inseparable from their belief. Their actions are inseparable. Their repentance and their belief are the same thing. This is the problem sometimes. We think that faith and action or belief and repentance are two separate issues. They're not. They're two sides of the same coin. Repentance and belief are the same thing. Did you know that? What does repentance mean? Repentance means changing your mind and changing your direction. If I really believe something is true, it will change my actions, won't it? 
So this idea that there can be faith without repentance is actually unbiblical. And it's for this reason that there are many in our country that I think have false assurance because they were told that simply by ascending to this idea that God is God and Jesus is God that they're saved. But in fact, repentance is required in salvation. How else do you know you've really believed? See, these guys, we know they believed God's word. How? Because they showed it with their actions. Our actions are not what save us, but our actions display that we are saved. Our actions prove that we do believe. You need to see that. Their repentance is, is shown. And it's not only seen in their outward signs of piety. It's not just, oh, wow, you guys, you're, you're in dust and ashes. Okay, I'll relent. No, no, no. That wasn't, that wasn't what God was after. What was he after? They ceased from their violence. They stopped doing what they were doing. And they changed. That's repentance. It's not done with a, notice, it's not done with a presupposition or an expectation of God's mercy either. You see that? They're not like, well, God will forgive us if we just kind of get our act together. They're like, there's no promise of forgiveness here. There's just this 40 days, which, by the way, 40 is the number of testing in the Bible, right? Jesus went into the wilderness to be tested for 40 days. Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years, uh, Moses was up on Sinai for 40 days. This is, this is a, a period of testing. So there's implied here that God may relent, but really there's no, there's no clear connection to mercy. And they're not assuming God's gonna be merciful. They're just like, what if? Maybe God will be merciful. This repentance is deep, it's robust, it's thorough, it's actionable, it's visible. You can see it. It's not just sort of, a, oh, I feel bad that, that we might get fried. It's like they're really seriously repenting. And verse 10 God relents, we see in verse 10, when God saw that they did, uh, that is, cease from evil, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So God relents because they've repented, because they've turned. Now, just a quick side, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but one of the things that commentators argue about is what kind of salvation is happening here? Are these people, these Ninevites, are they becoming believers? God's children, part of the covenant community of Yahweh? Or are they just ceasing from evil? Um, I don't know, but consider a few things that would maybe suggest that they aren't necessarily saved in the way we would think about it, okay? They're saved from God's immediate wrath, but are they saved eternally? I don't think so. First of all, these people are what are called polytheistic syncretists. Let me unpack that. Polytheists, they worship multiple gods. Oh, there's a god over here we've offended? No worries. We're worshiping all the gods, right? Um, syncretist means that they didn't sort of leave the gods separated. They melded them together. Israel was actually guilty of syncretism for most of their history. You know, uh, Israel never stopped worshiping Yahweh. You know what they did? They put idols in the temple for like 80% of their history. Israel was a syncretistic nation saying, hey, the more the merrier. Let's worship this God and that God and that God. The more gods, the better. What's that called? It's called idolatry. So these were syncretistic people. So it's, it's really probable that what they're seeing here is not necessarily uh, entrance into salvation, covenant community. They're not necessarily becoming followers of Yahweh. They, they could just be like, hey, we got to appease this God. Like, let's stop doing our evil and then he'll back off us. The other thing that you can note if you want to is that uh, they don't use the covenant name of God here in chapter 3. The tradesmen did in chapter 1. They used the covenant name of God, Yahweh, Lord. Here they used the generic name for God. 
There's all kinds of different history about Jonah that's kind of interesting. I don't know if I have really time to mention it, but there's different things that were going on at the time that I think Assyria was ripe for, for the, at least the idea of changing because they had all kinds of droughts and plagues and, and failed attempts to conquer different things. And I think at this point, they're thinking, man, some God somewhere is mad at us. And Jonah's like, I'll tell you which one it is. But here's why I don't think that matters. I don't think it matters because I don't think the point of Jonah 3 is revival. I don't think this is a picture of revival. Here's what I think it's a picture of. I think it's a picture of faith in God's word leading to salvation. It's a, it's a picture of a group of people taking God at his word and taking God in his word in such a way that brings about repentance. So let's step back from this and let's, let's ask a few questions. Let's just kind of look at chapter three as a whole here. The right question that we should ask, and if you guys study your Bible, I hope you do, if you guys read your Bible in the morning, and you read a passage like this, you read Jonah chapter 3, and you think, okay, how do I apply this? Here's a good question to ask. You ready? Here's a good question to ask. What does this passage tell me about God? What does this passage tell me about what God is doing? And what does this passage tell me about how I should respond to that? Those are good questions to ask of the text. Not, where am I at in this? Am I the Ninevites? Am I David in the Goliath story? No. Uh, don't, don't try to superimpose yourself in there. You're in the church. You're in the future, okay? You're in Christ, okay? Who, are, who am I in Jonah chapter three? I don't really care. What's God doing? What's God doing? What do we learn about God? This is a book about God. This is his book, his story. It's not your personal love letter from God to you. That's garbage, okay? Uh, it's God's revelation of how he's saving the world. And guess what? You get to be part of it by faith. Isn't that good news? Okay, Jonah chapter three, if you try to insert yourself in, you're gonna come up all, with all kinds of weird stuff. The question we need to ask is, what do we learn about God, what God's doing, and how we can assimilate into that? And then we need to ask that question of two categories, okay? I'm gonna, this is like crash course for hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is how, we did, how do we interpret the Bible. You need to ask that of two categories. Category number one, the original audience. You guys know Jonah was written to an original audience? No, it's written to us too. God had a plan for it, but it was, it was originally written for an original audience. And we need to ask the question, what's the message to the original audience? Okay, so let's ask that question first. Who's the original audience, by the way? Israel, okay? Israel's the original audience. And what is it that God is trying to communicate to Israel through Jonah chapter three? A few things. First of all, that God is at work, listen, that God is at work in the nations and they need to get with his program. That's what Jonah chapter 3 is saying to Israel. Hey, uh, God is saying, hey, did you notice that I'm about the nations? This, this isn't some little tiny, you know, God didn't send uh, Abraham and, and the law so that he could have a little social club in the world. This little like elitist Israel thing where everyone else fries and Israel gets to be saved. That wasn't God's point in calling Israel. God called Israel to be a mission, a missionary mindset. He called them to be a light in the world. Here's Isaiah 49, verse 6. Here's God speaking to Israel. He says, it is too light a thing. In other words, this is too small of a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. In other words, I called you to more than just having a nation called Israel. He says, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Okay, God is a God of the nations. What is Israel supposed to learn here? What are we supposed to learn here from this? God is a God of the nations. 
God is a God who is desiring to work and is working in the nations. And he calls his people to be outposts, kingdom outposts, missionaries to the nations. And Israel is completely missing this. They're completely tuned out to this. And that's why we have the story of Jonah running away from God's mission. Because Israel is supposed to see themselves in Jonah. Okay? The second thing we're supposed to see here for Israel is if God will judge and hold the nations accountable, how much more is he going to hold his own kids accountable? See, this story should, and it really should have had this effect on Israel where they go, well, well God is aware of the, the injustice in the world, and he's sending a, son, or he's sending a prophet to, to warn them. How much more is he going to hold us accountable as his kids? Because what? Judgment begins where? In the house of the Lord. The third thing I think Israel was meant to take from this is if God will relent and have mercy on the nations, the pagan ham-eating Gentiles, then how much more will he have mercy on his own kids? Isn't that true? Isn't that true? Hey, kiddo. That's Florence. We love Florence. Um, how much more will God have mercy on his own kids, right? Now, she's so cute. Um, the second question we need to ask, guys, is how does this apply to us? How does this apply to us? Not just the original audience, but how does this apply to us? New Testament Christians, 2022, Philippi Church, Grants Pass, Oregon. Uh, yeah, you get the point. How does this apply to us? Okay, how does this apply to us? I want you to see two things, and we'll close here. Two things here about how this Jonah chapter 3 applies to us. First, we need to see in this, we need to see God's common grace. You guys familiar with that term, common grace? There's something I want to explain to you, and, and that is that, that God is a gracious God, and God has different kinds of grace. There is the kind of grace that you're accustomed to hearing about, that's saving grace. That's where God actually, by his spirit, brings people into the kingdom out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. That's saving grace. There's another kind of grace going on in the world right now, all around you. It's called common grace. The oxygen that you're breathing in your lungs right now, it's common grace. The air conditioner that just kicked on right now, it's common grace. The coffee you just drank this morning, it's common grace. The fact that you're standing or sitting right now in this world alive is common grace. God is working common grace. He's working it all around us. He's working it all through us. Now, what we see in Jonah chapter 3 here is not just a picture of a revival. We see a picture of God working common grace in the nations. God was not going to tolerate the violence of the Ninevites anymore. He was not going to tolerate it. It needed to stop. It needed to end. It needed to be done with. Listen to me, guys. Every office, every official, every organization, every administration, every lawmaker, every lawkeeper, every judge, jury, institution, and person that restrains evil in any way is an extension of God's hand of common grace. God is not, we're not deists. God's not off on vacation. God is, yes, working salvation in the, in the world, but he's also working to restrain human evil. All the time. And this is what we're meant to see here. We're meant to see a God who is kind to a nation that is so evil that it's taken over the ancient world and they're destroying themselves. And God says, I'm, I'm going to limit that. I'm going to send my servant to put a limit to that. God is working at all times. There's, there's three strands of grace that are working at all times in this world. And God, in his providence, he weaves them all together in the perfect way. The first strand is his saving grace. God's saving people. He's saving people all the time. He's causing all these different events, storms, things. He's working them all together to save people. That's one strand. The second strand 
is God's sanctifying grace. He's using everything that's happening in the world to, to change and transform and mature his people. There's a third strand, God's common grace. God is for the flourishing of humanity, even in a fallen, broken world. God raises up governments and causes governments to fall. God raised up the Assyrian government, and then he judged the Assyrian government with the Babylonian government. And then he judged the Babylonian government with the Greek government, or the Persian government, then the Greeks, then the Romans. <laughs> and somewhere we get to Britain, right? Um, all these empires. God allows these empires to raise up in order to bring common grace on the world. You ever think about that? We don't hear this preached about very often. But God is at work in the world. He's not just in the work to save. He's not just in the world to sanctify. He's in the world to restrain evil at all times. And we get the privilege as Christians to be involved in all three of those facets of grace. We get to, we get to, to be involved in all three of those. The second thing I want you to see here, and we'll close with this. The second thing I want you to see as New Testament Christians in Jonah chapter 3 is God's saving grace. Now, Here's another hermeneutics lesson, okay? If you're reading an Old Testament passage and you go, how does this apply to me? And Jesus actually referenced it in the New Testament, that's where you go, right? So Jonah chapter three, we have this really great privilege of knowing that Jesus actually used Jonah chapter three in order to teach us, New Testament Christians, something about what he wanted us to get. So let's go there. Matthew chapter 12, verse 38. I wanna look at it with you guys really quick. We'll close with this. Matthew chapter 12, verse 38. Here's the setting, the scribes and the Pharisees, who, by the way, had immense amounts of understanding into God's word. They had really the entire Old Testament memorized, most of them. And they had all this commentary, all this work, all this, this understanding of God's word. They are coming to Jesus saying, you need to prove to us that you really are the Messiah. Where's the sign? Okay, where's the sign? Now, they're not asking for credible evidence. They've already gotten credible evidence. Where did they get it? Well, they got it when Jesus came out of the water and the Father spoke from the heavens. Uh, they got it when Jesus was literally doing everything the Old Testament said he would do, healing the lepers, uh, fixing the blind, all of the things, casting out demons. Jesus has done everything that a, 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 a credible, given him a credible witness of who he is. But the Pharisees are like little kids. They want to be entertained. They need more. So they come to Jesus and they say, how do we really know whether we should believe you or not. So, Matthew 12, 38. Some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Okay, here's the irony that Jesus is going to draw on. How many signs did the Ninevites ask for? None. They just believed immediately. And Jesus, so when the Pharisees come to Jesus and they're like, Hey, we want a sign. Jesus' mind goes directly to Jonah chapter 3. And he goes, I'm going to use Jonah chapter 3 to try to really show these guys the reality of their unbelief. So here he goes. 39. He answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Again, this isn't credibility. This isn't like I want good evidence to believe. No, that's not what they're looking for. He says, an evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign. He says this. He says, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. 
For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying, you guys are going to get the same amount of evidence that the Ninevites got. In fact, you're going to get much more evidence than the Ninevites got. But he uses this picture of, of Jonah in the, the ocean or in the Mediterranean to picture his own death and his own resurrection. 41, the men of Nineveh, now this is so interesting, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. What's Jesus getting at here? He's saying these pagan Gentiles that knew nothing of Yahweh, knew nothing of the law, knew nothing of the Old Testament, through the worst sermon that's ever been given by the worst prophet in all of history, repented in dust and ashes. They believed God and were saved. And here Jesus is saying this, here I am, the son of God, manifesting divine power right in front of you. You have the entirety of the Old Testament scriptures and you still will not believe. He's saying the Ninevites are gonna judge you. Isn't that interesting? And then he says this, behold, something greater than Jonah is here. In other words, you really are missing it. There's a greater Jonah, there's a greater message, there's a greater death and a greater resurrection, and you guys still are not believing this message. And then 42, the queen of the south. Remember, uh, remember the queen of Egypt came, I think it was queen of Egypt, um, came and, and, and was curious about Solomon because she'd heard about his greatness. The queen of the south will rise up at judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Reminds me of the time Jesus said, you know, if Sodom and Gomorrah had heard this, they would, have re- or the, the, they, would have, the, they would have repented, right? Am I getting that right? He, he literally says that they will rise up and judge the cities of Capernaum because Capernaum saw so many miracles and they still didn't believe. So what's Jesus' point here? Jesus' point is very sim- sim- simple. Don't miss it. We are saved by one thing. We are saved by faith, but you can't stop there. You can't say, you're saved by faith. Oh, you're a person of faith. You're saved. Oh, I have faith. Good. Yeah. Everybody, let me just unpack this. Everyone is a person of faith. Did you know that? Every single person in the world is a person of faith. A person of faith is this. A person of faith is making decisions based off of what they're assuming to be true. They're living their life in a certain way. They're making decisions and choices based on what they believe to be true. Every religion and every non-religious person. You know, an atheist is a person of faith. They have faith that there's no God. It takes a lot of faith to be an atheist, doesn't it? Or an agnostic. An agnostic is a person of faith. I'm making a faith decision right now. I'm walking on this stage. I'm making a faith decision. I'm standing in front of you right now. I'm, 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 making, I'm making faith decision after faith decision. I am a person of faith, whether I want to be or not. Okay? The question is, are we saved by faith, or are we saved by faith in something? What were the Ninevites saved by faith in God's word. They were saved because they believed God and his word. They took him at his word. And so God relented. How do we know they believed? Because their actions showed it. 
They changed their thinking. They said, we need to stop what we're doing and repent, which means to turn around and go the opposite direction. Their, uh, their faith was seen in their works. They believed God took him at his word. That is saving faith. Guys, here's an interesting question. Who is your, who is your, um, who is the model for New Testament faith in the Bible? Nope. Not Jesus. Jesus is the model for how to walk in faith. But who's the model for saving faith in the Old Testament? Abraham. Abraham. Read the book of Romans. It'll tell you. Abraham is our model. Why? Why? Well, because, you know, Abraham wasn't really a Jew. <laughs> he was, he was, he was, he, there was no Jew when Abraham was called. He was just a dude. There was no Israel. There was no Judaism. There was no law. There was no Moses. There wasn't anything. God called Abraham, gave him a very minimal amount of truth and revelation. And Abraham said, okay. And he did it. And according to scripture, Abraham was saved by what? Faith in God's word. Abraham didn't have the law. All he had was God's word. And he said yes to God's word. Now, this is what Paul prosecutes in the book of Romans. He says, you Gentiles, your lineage doesn't trace back to the law. Your lineage traces back to Abraham. Because like Abraham, God spoke and you said, I'll take you at your word. And then you became one of God's kids. You're saved by faith in God's word. Faith is taking God at his word, saying, I believe that you mean what you say. Now, there are different levels of revelation throughout the year. Guess what? We have the most revelation that any human being has ever had at any point. You're accountable to how much faith you have in that, that revelation. Okay? So this, Jonah chapter 3 should elicit three feelings in us. Fright, insight, and delight. Let me just unpack these and we'll be done. Number one, fright. Okay? We should read Jonah chapter 3 in, in, in tandem with Matthew chapter 12 and go, man... If these guys repented based off of a five-word sermon in Hebrew that was pretty terrible, what am I doing with God's truth? Is God's truth working in me? Am I responding to it? Am I repenting? Am I changing? Am I, is, it, is it changing me? It should bring some fright. Number two, it should bring insight. It brings insight into how God saves. God saves by grace. He saves by grace through faith. It is his graciousness that is accessed by faith. Sam, this is review. We know this. I know, but we need to hear it. Okay, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We are saved when we believe that God said what he said and that he did what he did. And when we believe, righteousness is accredited to us, just like Abraham. Just like Abraham. This really matters right now. It really matters because people are going to say it's not about having a faith in someone. It's just about faith in general. And you need to say, uh, no. No. If I'm in an airplane and that airplane is headed towards a mountain and I say, you know, I really believe that that parachute over there will save my life. But I never put it on. Is that saving faith? No. I don't really, I mean, I don't really believe that. If I really believed that, I would put it on and I would jump out of the plane. That's a basic example, but, but this is the difference between faith that is just sort of mental assent. Yes, sure, I think God's real. Yes, sure, I think God exists. Am I, is that saving faith? No. Saving faith is, 
I actually believe this to the point where it's going to repent. I'm going to repent. It's going to change the way I think, the way I act, the way I do. That is saving faith. And that's what we see here in this picture. These guys were saved by their belief in God's word. It was not faith in faith. It was faith in God. We are saved when we believe God's word. The third thing that this should bring us to feel is delight. It's delight that God is saving and working in the nations. God is a saving God. In the beginning, I asked this question. I said, is God good? This is the question that culture is asking. Is God good? Is he good? Well, what does Jonah chapter 3 tell you about that? Jonah chapter 3 shows a God of justice that is not tolerating the violence and evil of the Assyrian Empire who is restraining, working to restrain and limit evil, to promote human flourishing. We see a God who loves the nations and the pagans so much that he sends a servant to go declare the word so that there is an opportunity for salvation. What do you think? Is God good? Jonah chapter 3 says yes. Jonah chapter 3 tells us that God is a God who invades dark spaces, spaces that have been wholly given over to violence and evil and wickedness. God sends light and truth in his word into those spaces. Is God good? Yes, God is a God who redeems our mistakes, who gives Jonah a second chance, who uses those that are not usable, who uses people like me and like Jonah that are not worthy. He uses them. Is God good? I would say yes, a God who redeems our mistakes and turns parables into our failures. He is good. Jonah chapter 3, when we step back and we think about it, it shows us that we serve a God who saves, who is good. But I want you to think about this. Have you done what the Ninevites did? <laughs> have, you, have you done that? Have you, have you literally said, I'm going to take God at his word to the point where it's going to change everything about me? We think about faith in our culture. We think of it as a commodity or, or something that I just sort of add to my life. Faith is a nice little addition to my life. No, faith is something that changes everything in your life. If Jesus really rose from the dead, everything changes. Everything changes. Amen? I'm going to invite Trevor back up. We're going to close. Let me just pray for you. God, thank you so much for Jonah chapter 3. Thank you, Lord, that we are saved by grace through faith in your word. And Jesus, you are the word. We are saved because we believe that you did what you said you did that you're good. We thank you for these fundamental truths this morning. And I pray, God, I pray that I would see myself in Jonah, that I would see my hardness of heart, that I would see that I'm more concerned about building my own kingdom than seeing the lost come into your kingdom. God, I pray you would give us your heart for the nations. You would give us your heart for Grant's past. You'd give us your heart for each other. The gospel would do a powerful work in us, God, continually. Lord, we love you so much. In Jesus' name, amen.